We list in your bulletin that as we enter into this time where we call it God renewing us through the ministry, through the preached word, that we begin with a prayer of illumination. We begin that way because it's an acknowledgement that none of us can understand God's word of our own accord, that we all need his spirit, whether that's me teaching or you receiving it. It's not our interpretation, but it's as the Spirit imparts, as the Spirit illumines our hearts and our minds, and it's a reminder that this is well. This is not just simply a time of learning. This is a time of worship, that God is acting upon us through his Spirit in the Word, forming us into his disciples. He's forming us and making us Christ-like if we belong to him, if we are believers in him. And if you are a seeker or if you consider yourself not yet believing, I give you this as an invitation to observe And maybe ask the Lord to make himself real to you. You're not here by accident. This could be uh, a time for you to consider the claims of Jesus and his word upon your life. And so I want to offer that invitation to you as well. So let's go to the Lord now and ask for him to illumine and open our hearts and our minds as we open his word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher Holy Spirit, that you would do what you're going to do in us. And so we yield to you. The psalmist leading your people in worship said, today if you hear his voice, and of course we hear your voice in the scriptures, do not harden your hearts as was done by our forefathers. So I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we would be teachable, that we would not be questioning uh, what you're doing in our lives, but we would be submissive and surrender to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark, asking the question, who is the real Jesus? Who is this King of Kings? What did he come to do? What is he all about? And we are proceeding, and we are at chapter 3, and the text that I'll be reading this morning is Mark chapter 3, verses 6 through 19. So let's turn our hearts and hear the word of the Lord. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons." He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. One of the themes of Mark's gospel is the theme of discipleship. It's one of the things we are emphasizing this morning, which if I can give a quick plug for our discipleship hour, it's one of the reasons we're doing that as our initial class, the basics of discipleship. 
and I know I call it discipleship hour. It, discipleship 45 minutes didn't sound right. I know it's 10 to 10.45, so don't be literal on me on that. Discipleship hour just, it flowed better, don't you think, in terms of that? But one of the themes, and we're emphasizing it too because it's one of the prominent themes in Mark's gospel, that Jesus is forming a people, a new humanity, a counterculture, if you would, an alternative society for himself. And one of the things we have to recognize as we look at discipleship, and it may take a little bit of a shift for us, is we who are children of the American kind of enlightenment, all of these types of things, we're used to, and it's kind of one of the things we grow up with, and it, and it has good things about it, work ethic and responsibility, but you've heard about rugged individualism, even the way I say it. You've got to say it tough, don't you? Rugged individualism, you know? You've heard it, and it's great. But it can lead us as disciples, thinking with the mind of Christ and in a Christian way, to forget that the Bible is all about God forming a people for himself. We just baptized Riley and Kenneth and brought them into, gave them the sign and the seal of God's covenant of grace that he gave to a people. That's why we call it the sign and seal of God's covenant initiation. The Old Testament is all about God relating to his people by view of a covenant, making a community, forming a people for himself, where he says, although the whole earth is mine, I own every square inch of it, you will be for me my treasured possession, not just as individuals, but as a people. I will be your God and you will be my people. And I think so often we read the Bible and we read it only from the standpoint of, what does it mean to me? What is God saying to me? It's all about this God and me relationship, and we forget that, just take the New Testament. The epistles, the letters are written to churches. It's to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Corinth, to the church at Thessalonica. He is writing to form a people for himself. I say this because here we are in the Gospel of Mark, and what is Jesus beginning to do? Mark is revealing how Jesus is beginning to form, and he's beginning with his leadership community, his apostles, his disciples, and he's beginning to form a community, a people for himself. One of the things that we need to recognize as we enter into this is that the apostles, as they were, had a unique historical and foundational role that is unique to them. There are no apostles today. They were unique to that time. Paul writes in Ephesians that the scriptures were built, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. But just because we say it's an unrepeatable office does not mean that there aren't lessons and principles from how Jesus called them and how he formed them that we can't apply and bring into our lives of walking with him as his disciples. And we want to look this morning at three aspects of discipleship that we learn from Jesus' calling of the first 12 apostles. Three aspects of discipleship that we are calling the community of Jesus. And let's be honest as we do this. Community is, we kind of have a love-hate relationship with it. We all know something of the sweetness and the joy of being loved, of working on a project together, of sacrificing and committing and laying down your own agendas for the sake of the whole, putting aside your preferences for the good of the community or the group. We also know something of the hard work it takes to make community work, 
how easy it is to be misunderstood, how easy it is to have tension come up. We know something of the loneliness that can be involved, the sense of alienation, the sense of, do I fit? You know, you come in, if you're a visitor in a new church, it can be difficult at times because it's like, well, will I be welcomed? Will I fit into the culture of this particular group, of this particular organization? So community is a difficult thing, and yet it is something that God is intimately committed to, and he doesn't back down on. And we learn three lessons from Jesus' calling of the 12 apostles here for our own community life. Those three lessons is that we have a communal identity. It is who we are. We are a community. With that comes a new relationship. It's not that there isn't an individual application, so this is a both and. There is a new relationship that is given when Jesus calls. And finally, the community of Jesus has a missional vocation. Its vocation is outward looking, outward focusing. So a communal identity, a new relationship, and a missional vocation. Look with me at the context of this narrative. From verse 6 following, verse 6 mentions some of the conflict that's intensifying. I included that in the reading, even though we covered that last week, where you have the Herodians, kind of the political group. They followed King Herod. And the Pharisees, a definite religious sect, where they who didn't agree on anything could agree on one thing. Let's consult together how to destroy Jesus. And so this conflict is intensifying, and yet, at the same time, you've got this escalating conflict going on. And even, that's why I chose to end the reading, even in Jesus' calling of the 12 apostles, you've got, and it's not by accident, the last one is Judas Iscariot, who Mark tells us was to betray him. There's your conflict again. But while conflict's going on, Jesus' popularity has never been greater. In fact, I love verse 9, where it talks about, and I would love this, I would love to be able to come and, and have to say, things were going so well, look at this, Shane, Gabe, Rick, get me a boat in case so many people are coming to knock down the doors. Wouldn't that be amazing to be able to say, where's my boat I want to be able to take off? in case, lest they crush me. I'm only five foot three, you know, I'm easily crushable. I'm a fragile guy. But that's his popularity. And, and in one sense, it's a no-brainer, because what is he doing? He's healing anybody of anything. And in a time, think about this, where there was very limited medical skill, very limited, okay, there weren't antibiotics, there weren't medicines you can, can take, there weren't things that you could do. What is Jesus doing? He's healing everybody. And he even comes to the point, the unclean spirits, those spirits that were non-physical in entity, but when they would inhabit a person, they would defile them, making them, in a sense, subhuman or unhuman, if you would. Even they recognized who Jesus was, for they cried out, you are the Son of God, and what did Jesus do? He ordered them to stop basically say, um, it's the church's job to make my name known, not your job to make my name known. So Jesus commands even the unclean spirits, and it's in the context of there. Notice what the text tells us is next to happen. Jesus goes up on a mountain. Now, I've shared with you before, you need to sometimes take the time to read the Bible slowly, because don't miss that detail. 
to Mark's original readers, Jesus going up on the mountain would have been very intentional and would have been a definite allusion to the work of Moses, who went up on Mount Sinai and what happened when he went on on Mount Sinai? God gave him the revelation to give to Israel to do what? Form a people for himself. Mount Sinai was where the giving of the law, the instructions for the tabernacle, the presence of God was to meet with the people. It was all about entering into that covenant relationship, and God was, through Moses, forming a people for himself. Now, notice what happens here in the text. Jesus goes up on the mountain, and he calls, and the number here is extremely significant. He calls 12 to himself. He desires and calls 12 to himself. That number, why is that number important? Because Jesus is on a mountain to do what? To reform, reimagine, remake, and reconstitute a people, a covenant community, an Israel, if you would, for himself. And see, from one perspective, a historical perspective, we learn that there were 12 tribes of Israel, 12 sons of the patriarch Jacob, who we learn about in the book of Genesis, Ten of those tribes were centuries earlier carried away when the Assyrians invaded them and brought them into exile. And as you continue to read through the Old Testament, the prophets foretold of a coming time, a future time, when God would return, gather them to himself, reform them, bring them to himself, and restore them. And so what you have here is not just a great healing vigil, not a spiritual renewal, not a revival, but you have the coming of Yahweh himself to his people to remake them, to reform them, to reinstitute them. But of course, not in the usual way. Not in a way, in fact, as we go through the gospel, you'll see how easily it is that they missed it. How easily it is they don't understand what the coming of the kingdom is all about, what it means, what it looks like, and how it came into being. For Jesus' kingdom was not any ordinary kingdom. So the first thing to recognize here is that Jesus is forming a people. And our very identity is a communal identity. But there is an individual application. Because he gives you, when he calls you, he gives you a new relationship. Look with me at verse 13. It says, he went up on the mountain, called to him those whom he desired, they came to him, And he appointed 12, the next line says, who we also named apostles. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus named them apostles. It's so easy just to kind of gloss over this and look over this and miss this instead of seeing the significance of this. First of all, the apostles as a group, the word apostles literally means sent ones. So he named them sent ones as a group. Now they were sent ones in a unique and a foundational way that we aren't. They were responsible for receiving the revelation from God. All scripture is inspired by God. They received it. They wrote it down. It was canonized and it became our New Testament scripture. But at the end of John's gospel, John says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So we, even though we don't share the unique foundational role, none of us are called apostles, we still have as disciples the foundational identity and relationship to Jesus as being sent ones. 
As the Father sent Jesus, Jesus commissions us. And he sends us as a people. In our very nature, we are sent. That's what the word, you hear missionaries say this all the time, missional. That's what it means to be missional. It means as a church, we've been sent to Port Orange and New Smyrna Beach and Daytona Beach. It's part of our nature. So he speaks that when he calls them apostles, but then he kind of drills down somewhat individually. He says, Simon, I'm going to rename you. You're Peter, rock. I love this next one, James and John. Wouldn't you love to be called sons of thunder? That to me is the coolest nickname. Who are you? I'm a son of thunder. And he drills down, and what is he doing? See, this, he's naming and renaming. And why is this so important? Tim Keller says the following. He says, in ancient times, names were extremely important, and naming was a great act of importance and power. Your name was supposed to convey the essence of who you are. In other words, it was your identity. It signified who you were as a person. So if you went through a great change in life, you had to change your name. If you had multiple names, it meant you were a great person. You were a person of multi-dimensions. Look at how this was done throughout the Old Testament. Sarai becomes Sarah. Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. The first job God gave to Adam was to do what? Name the animals. One of the reasons he did that is when you name something, think about when you have your child or something, bring home a pet and give them a pet. One of the reasons you let them name the pet is that it gives them ownership over it, responsibility. When Jesus names us, do you see what he's doing here? He's taking responsibility for us. Do you see how gracious this is? When we're called as Christians, we're brought into a new relationship where it's not our responsibility, it's his. He takes responsibility. He's the good shepherd. He looks after us. He's in covenant with us. He binds his heart and his life up with ours. He names us and he renames us. Tim Keller says this isn't just an ancient and irrelevant thing for today. He gives the following illustration and example in our modern times. So, for example, do any of you know who Demetria Gines is? I didn't until I wikipedia this. She's Demi Moore, the actress. Or how about Gordon Matthew Sumner? He's the rock star Sting, who sang for years with the police. Or the last one, and this one's my favorite. Marion Michael Morrison. Tim looks like he knows who that is. That's the Duke, John Wayne. Isn't that great? Couldn't be Marion. He's got to be the Duke, John Wayne. And Tim Keller makes the point, he says, because they couldn't reinvent themselves, which they were doing when they became actors, without first changing their name. Because your name is the essence of who you are. I'll even give a personal example for this. My father's original given name by his parents is not Birch. My father was born the son of a Polish immigrant. His name is Richard Brzozowski. Evie says every time he, he, she sees him, she goes, thank you that I'm not Evie Brzozowski. <laughs> See, what happened is my dad, as the son of a Polish immigrant, when he came over as a child to America, loved the country, wanted to be American, and so when he turned 18, went to the courthouse in New York City, asked for the Americanized version of Brzozowski, and it was birched. 
and he legally changed his name to Richard Birch. So I was truly born Jeff Birch, and Evie could be married as Evie Birch. But see, the name conveys the essence of who you are. And see, this is very significant. Again, Tim Keller says, when Jesus is naming them, he is actually, because Jesus is creator, he's creating a reality. Just like original creation, when he created out of nothing, he is creating a reality. So he says he is not naming them apostles because they have what it takes. Jesus didn't look at them and say, oh, I see great potential. These are sharp guys. They have what it takes. No, he didn't look at the 12 and say, these guys have what it takes, and so I'll name them apostles. He gave them what it took. He didn't recognize that they had what it took. He gave them what it took. Dr. Keller writes, Jesus' naming has that power. He goes on to say, if you are ugly and Jesus names you beautiful, which in the gospel he does, he can't be wrong. His name imparts that beauty. If you're weak and Jesus names you strong, and he will, he makes you strong. In other words, Jesus has the divine power to call into being out of nothing that which he names as he names it. The question is, where are you looking for your name? Where are you looking for your identity? Are you looking for it in being a parent, a spouse, your work, your career? Maybe it's your image, what you put forward, how you look, what you present. Maybe it's your financial resources. The name of Jesus is the only name that can give life, true life, life that will never fail, life that always satisfies, life that will not disappoint. The name of Jesus is the only name that can secure you, ground you, and give you the identity that you need. The question is, how do we go about discovering our identity. How do we go about discovering or living out of, so to speak, our name? See, where are you looking for it, and how do you go about discovering it? And the answer might surprise you, and the answer is found in our third point, that when Jesus forms a community, he forms a community with a missional vocation. See, how do you discover your name? Tim Keller makes the point, he says, he says was Peter all of a sudden a rock? Jesus named him Rock, and he was, I don't think so. Was, was Peter acting altogether rocky when he denied Jesus three times? I don't think that was very rocky of him. Or was he rocky when he stepped out of the boat and started to walk on water and all of a sudden discovered it was a windy day out? And he starts to sink. How did Peter go about growing into his name? It happened after the Spirit came on and released him for what? For mission. When he realized part of his calling was to be on mission with a community for Jesus. See, look at the text here in verse 14. He appointed 12 whom he named apostles so that, indicating purpose, they might be with him. Part of your missional vocation is that we are with Jesus. This is not our mission, it's him. It's his we're not making up something as we go. We are participating on mission with Jesus. How freeing is that? We're with Jesus to preach and have authority to cast out demons. In other words, you discover your name or your identity as you live with Jesus 
and go on mission together as a community, as a church with Jesus. As the Father sent Jesus, he sends us. Remember I said earlier on Mark's gospel, is a prominent theme in Mark's gospel is discipleship. He's hinting at it here. Later on, Mark chapter 8, he'll say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. There's an incredible discipleship mandate and principle there. Whoever would save his life. That's, if you're going to go about trying to find yourself directly, find your identity through psychology, through self-knowledge, through self-awareness, any of these... Listen to the promise of the scriptures. You will lose it. You lose yourself in trying directly to go about finding yourself. But if you lose yourself for Jesus, give yourself in your ordinary life. This is not going out and changing the world. But if you raise your family for Jesus, if you live in your neighborhood for Jesus, if you live in the church for Jesus and for the gospel's sake, that's where you find your truest Self. Again, I think Tim Keller puts it beautifully when he says, instead of trying to find yourself, try to find other selves. Instead of trying to find out who you are, help other people find out who they are. Instead of working on yourself, serve others, and you will find out who you are. You can never find yourself directly. Serve and love other people. Pour yourself out for other people. Help unleash them from the things that bind them. Pour your life out for other people, and you will get yourself. And how in the world do we get to do this? Where we pour ourselves out for others. We live in order to love. We live with the purpose of loving God and loving people. And in doing that, finding yourself, when you realize that's exactly what Jesus did for you. See, Jesus didn't come to just give you an example. Jesus was sent for you. Paul writes, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. How did Jesus find himself? Think about this. Who are we? We're the body of Christ. Even though we're not identified, I'm not identifying us with Jesus, we're connected, we're united, we're engrafted into him, and so we are the body of Christ. So in a sense, by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, Jesus found himself. He got a body in getting us. He got us by giving himself for us. I know this is, it feels upside down, it feels counterintuitive, it feels paradoxical. You will find more joy, more satisfaction, more purpose, more vitality, more vibrancy, the more you live to love and serve others. The more you pour yourself out serving others, the more you find yourself. That doesn't mean we don't take care of ourselves. It doesn't mean we don't set boundaries. It's not impractical. But it means we live for the purpose of serving. We have an outward face, an outward focus. It means we don't live to say, how can we make a great Spruce Creek church? How can we be wonderful? How can we be big? No, it says we live to serve 
our neighborhoods. We live to serve our cities. We live to serve our communities. We don't sit there and say, how can we become great? We say, how can we make others great? Because what God is doing is he is, and it's his mission. And Paul shared his mission when he said to the church at Colossae, he says, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is God in the flesh. And through Jesus, God in the flesh, here's God's mission, here's what he's doing to reconcile to himself all things. That's not every individual, that's all things. That's his elect, that's his, he's gathering his people, that's cultures, that's races, that's nations. He's bringing, he's reconciling all things. You know how he's doing it? He's doing it through his community. He's doing it through us. As the Father sent Jesus, and God is renewing and reconciling all things to himself through the ministry of the church. The community of Jesus has a communal nature. We are together. You better learn to like each other. You're going to live with each other for all eternity. That might have depressed some of you. I'm not sure. We have a new relationship. You have been given a new name. And even read the New Testament. You want to know what some of your names are? The New Testament says, Beloved, let us love one another. As God's chosen ones, Put on humility and meekness and kindness. In him we have redemption. You're named redeemed. You're named forgiven. You're named righteous. You're named beautiful. You've been given a new name, a new relationship in Jesus. And we've been given out of that new name that empowers us. We've been given a new vocation. God's doing the mission. He's doing it throughout. We don't even have to make it up. God's reconciling all things to himself through us as we live and embody this in word and deed. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would continue to flesh out these things in our lives, that we would be a more communal identity with this new relationship and with this new vocation. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its teaching. We pray that you continue to quicken it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.